This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the 150-year-old investment bank, Goldman Sachs. From the outside, investment banks like Goldman are black boxes of profits and the embodiment of Wall Street. But as with most things, the reality sits somewhere between the polarizing designations. Goldman is neither a vampire squid, nor are they doing God's work. To break down Goldman, I'm joined by longtime financials analyst Mark Rubenstein. For loyal listeners, you'll remember Mark from our popular episode on Blackstone. For those who haven't listened, I think you'll enjoy that one in tandem with this. Having personally worked at Goldman for a decade, it was great to go through the inner workings of a bank with Mark. We cover what it means to sit at the center of capital system and the various ways a bank facilitates risk management and risk transfer. We cover the DNA of bank profitability as we go through the core segments of a bank, asset management, sales and trading, and investment banking. And we talk about culture, the mystery and the prestige that has followed Goldman since its days as a private partnership. I learned a ton through this conversation, and I think you will too. Please enjoy this breakdown of Goldman Sachs. All right, Mark, welcome back to Business Breakdowns. Thank you, Matt. So for anyone who didn't listen to Mark's business breakdown on Blackstone, I highly recommend it. But Mark, maybe for those who aren't familiar with your career and your background, you can give us a quick sketch of why you're the right guy to break down Goldman. Thanks, Matt. So I've spent 20 plus years looking at financial services companies, initially as a sell-side research analyst. Never worked at Goldman, but I worked for some of its competitors. And then I spent 10 years as a partner in a hedge fund investing exclusively in financial stocks. Goldman was a portfolio company. We were also a client of Goldman. So it's a firm I got to know quite well from multiple different perspectives over the years. Yeah. And as a company that I worked at for a decade, I think it'll be a really fun conversation. It's one where I don't have any background investing in financial services businesses or banks. It's always been a bit of an alien industry to me in terms of understanding how investors view the businesses, think about the businesses. So it'll be a very fun conversation. I thought a good place to start was actually on the investment banking side of things and just understanding the model. Up until very recently, Goldman wasn't a consumer-facing business, yet it was the poster child of corporate greed in some ways. So maybe you could just walk us through what an investment bank is, what they do, and how they make money. The way I think about the investment banking business model is that they allow clients, which can be corporate clients, or they could be institutional clients, to take risk. A client has a risk they don't want, or they want a risk they don't have. And Goldman Sachs and investment banks generally, they sit in the middle and they make that happen. And there are three ways that that takes place. The first is that they actively take risk on their own balance sheet. That can be 
by underwriting an IPO, for example. It can be by being the counterparty in a securities transaction, for example, that actively take risk onto their balance sheet for their client. They can match risk by transferring it between parties. One example here is the oil industry. So the government of Mexico might be a client of an investment bank. They want to protect themselves against a drop in oil prices as an oil manufacturer. Airlines, on the other hand, also clients of the investment bank, may want to protect themselves against a rise in prices. So Goldman or the investment bank provides the search functionality sitting between those clients, allowing them to transfer risk. And then finally, they source risk. There are investors out there, institutional investors that want to take investment opportunities. They want risk and the investment banks can source that risk. They package it through some structured products, various other types of product that they offer through derivatives, for example, enables those clients to actually take on the risk that they want. number of different ways, but the common theme really is that they traffic in risk. That's a great breakdown. And we're going to get into the weeds of that risk and what that means in terms of financials and converting that into dollars and cents. I think it's good to go over the history here. The firm has a culture, which I think many people focus on. And I got to read this quote because I think it's just a magnificent quote. The world's most powerful investment bank is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. It's just an amazing quote there by Matt Taibbi's famous Rolling Stone article in 2010. But maybe you can help us understand when and why did Goldman become the industry villain? Goldman is now 150 years old. And for most of that time, it survived largely in the shadows of popular psychology. People on the main street didn't really know about Goldman Sachs. They knew it possibly by name, but they didn't really know what it did because it operated in the institutional markets. Its clients were large corporates. Its clients were investment-oriented institutions. They weren't consumers. They weren't people who operated on Main Street. That was the case actually quite purposefully. Historically, the management of Goldman Sachs had taken the view that they didn't want to get too close to consumers because of the potential liabilities that would arise. The sorts of risks that they were transferring and transacting between institutions and corporates were such that those corporates understood those risks and it wasn't a product that was viable for Main Street. So they stayed away from Main Street, didn't get involved in consumer business. And as a result, consumers didn't really know too much about Goldman Sachs. All that changed in the global financial crisis, 2007, 2008. The quote you highlighted, can't remember when it was written, 2010, maybe something like that, with massive backlash against Goldman Sachs and some of its peers following the financial crisis. Lots of reasons why that was the case. My own take is that during the financial crisis, a lot of these banks had to be bailed out. They received injections of capital from the US taxpayer, from the government. In Goldman's case, they weren't one of the most badly affected of the banks, but nevertheless, they were affected by the financial crisis and were forced to take 
government financial aid. In 2009, coming out of the financial crisis, Goldman did very well. The markets recovered very quickly. Goldman, having taken its lumps in 2008, and we'll talk about balance sheet management and risk management in a while, was able to enjoy that tailwind of recovery markets. And in 2009, actually had a record year in terms of revenue. In 2009, the company made $45 billion of revenue. Historically, it was making maybe between 15 and $25 billion. And the image that portrayed of, in the immediate aftermath, having taken financial aid from the government and having been accused of profiting from the housing downturn, then to post record profits was seen in very poor taste. The backlash from commentators, from the media, from politicians was very intense. And that gave rise to the quote that you mentioned. There's this interesting framework of maximizing shareholder value. And I think many of us in the industry just immediately tie that to maximizing profits. But here's perhaps the counterexample where maximizing profits might not be what maximizes shareholder value, at least in the short term. Let's fast forward to today. Give us a sense of Goldman's scale today, whether you look at that on an asset basis, on a deal basis, and maybe a little comparison to how that looked 15 years ago. I'd be curious to know if you think there's been any material change in Goldman's business as a result of a lot of that backlash and the financial crisis as well. Yeah, so the business is quite different. The business today, it's a bank. Prior to 2008, Goldman was regulated by the SEC. It was classified as a broker-dealer. In order to gain access to some of the emergency funding facilities that the government allowed at the end of 2008, Goldman was forced to reclassify as a bank holding company. It's now regulated by the Fed. There are some nuances as to what that means, and we can talk about that. But to all intents and purposes, it is a different beast to how it was then, not least as well. And this is something that has emerged more recently. They are now more consumer facing than they used to be. It's a big organization. The firm enjoyed record revenues 2021, close to $60 billion in revenue. Clearly, there is a relationship given that it sits at the nexus of risk-taking with risk appetite and its revenue-generating capacity. And 2021 was a year where risk appetite was very, very high. So no coincidence, that's when they had their record year of revenues. It's a cyclical business. They operate four segments. The first segment is what they call global markets. Global markets is the sales and trading business the equities business, the fixed income business. Second segment is the narrow investment banking business. Some people talk about investment banking very broadly to include firms like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. Narrowly defined investment banking consists of M&A advisory and underwriting. Goldman Sachs for many years has operated an asset management business. They currently have over $2.5 trillion of assets under supervision. And then the final segment, which is relatively new, is the consumer wealth segment. Having gone in and faced up to the opportunities consumers allowed, 
They now have a consumer business. Listeners might be familiar with Marcus, which raises deposits, online banking, and they also have an ultra high net worth wealth management business as well. If I dimension those four businesses, global markets, about 40% of revenues, investment banking, which is M&A and underwriting, about 20%, asset management, around a quarter, 25%, and the rest, 15%, is the consumer and wealth business. And Mark, is there a way to frame the size of the industry that Goldman Sachs operates in? It's not easy because revenues are inherently in the sales and trading business quite volatile. But if we look at the top 15 players globally and look at how much revenue they generate, you're looking at $200 billion, $210 billion of revenue across M&A, underwriting, equities, fixed income businesses. And is that number growing at a level similar to GDP? Is there a different growth factor beyond that? Over the very long term, yes. But in the short term, there is a lot of cyclicality linked to underlying market conditions. 2021 was a record year. It's unlikely we're going to see that level of revenues again in the short term. We hit $210 billion of revenues globally. But over the long term, yeah, pretty much on a par with GDP. Maybe we can go through each of those segments and just break down the DNA of how profit is generated in the segments themselves. Let's start with investment banking. How does an investment banking deal result in profitability for Goldman? So that's the simplest to answer. Goldman takes a cut of the overall transaction value. For an IPO, that might be 3%. IPOs are a very profitable business. One of the reasons for the record revenues in 2021 was the very high level of IPO activity that occurred in that year. But the margin take rate, if you like, will scale down so that for an investment grade debt offering, we're just talking a matter of basis points. M&A, also quite profitable. Globally, fee rates might be 50 60 basis points, so 05 to 0.6% of the transaction value. Typically, they're lower for higher-sized deals, big deals. $10 billion plus will typically command lower margins than the smaller deals. Goldman is very well positioned across all of those areas. Last year alone, there was trillion dollars worth of M&A, so 05 0.6% of that as a revenue margin is a pretty lucrative business. Goldman is the number one in investment banking globally, alongside JP Morgan. They have a market share between 15 and 20%, depending on the product line, whether it's M&A or equity underwriting or debt underwriting, but it's a fairly healthy position and it's a pretty profitable business. Is it fair to assume that investment banking revenues are closely tied to macro environments? What you described there was strength during IPO markets, which I think of as when the market is strong. Similarly, when it comes to M&A, I guess the fixed income business is a little bit more stable. But is that safe to assume that's somewhat of a cyclical business that's tied to general macro? I think that's fair. I think the company itself will say that those revenues are dictated by GDP, by economic activity. I would probably impose a overlay on that which links to risk appetite, which is correlated to a degree to GDP. 
but can overshoot and undershoot. And it's those kind of animal instincts from the corporate side. We'll go on and talk about the institutional side when we talk about sales and trading that really drive those revenues. Yeah, it's a great segue into sales and trading where I spent a big chunk of my career. How does Goldman generate revenue and bottom line dollars in the sales and trading division? This is less easy to answer. So there's no take rate as such. There's no revenue spread that the company takes. There are two ways it makes money doing sales and trading. It makes money intermediating trades. So Goldman is a market maker. There is a spread typically between the bid and offer on any transaction. And we talked earlier about one of their roles, matching risk and sitting at the center of that risk matching process. And they'll make money by quoting a bid and an offer between those two sides. By sitting in the middle, providing that search functionality, that's how they'll make money. Now, that bid and offer is not fixed. So unlike the kind of margins we spoke about on the investment banking side, which are driven by competition, driven by normal features or that determine pricing in any industry environment, there's another dimension which feeds into this intermediation spread, if you like, which is volatility. Typically, when volatility is higher, those spreads will go up and the opportunity to make money sitting in the middle goes up as well. Now, as observers of this industry, we often talk about good volatility and bad volatility. Good volatility is kind of volatility in a range, which allows the intermediary to increase that spread. Bad volatility has implications for risk management. We can talk about that when we talk about some of the risks that Goldman assumes on its balance sheet. But suffice it to say, kind of a generous, healthy dollop of volatility is pretty good for this business. That's one source. Another source within sales and trading is financing. So this would be margin lending, which takes place in the prime brokerage business that occurs. And Goldman is very strong in that business. It might be doing warehouse loans. It might be corporate lending. Actually, it's an area that Goldman is pushing more heavily into increasingly. And if you dimension this, one of the reasons why this is a difficult business line to project, given that volatility dynamic, is that historically, it's been very volatile. When we think about the valuation of an investment bank and the valuation of Goldman specifically, one of the constraints to valuation is that it's very difficult. There's a kind of black box to the sales and trading business, and it's very difficult to project what earnings power is from that business. But if you look historically, Goldman has made maybe $5 billion a year on the financing side. And then on the intermediation side, it makes within fixed income between maybe five and 10 billion, and then equities maybe between four and 8 billion. So that gives you a sense of the range and the volatility, the variance in those business lines. But if you add it all together, you're getting 14, 15, 16 billion of revenue from that sales and trading business. And when we think about revenue, especially as we compare it to something like investment banking, is it safe to assume that's a net revenue number that we can just apply to the overhead. Is there anything else that would be deducted out of that from a cost perspective that would make a dollar of revenue from sales and trading worth less than a dollar of revenue from banking? 
Yeah, it's an interesting point. The margins are very different in the two businesses. Rule of thumb is that the more capital intensive the activity, the more balance sheet the company is putting behind it, then the higher the efficiency from a labor perspective. Simple split, labor and capital. The more capital that goes in, the less labor costs and vice versa. Banking is typically a very labor-intensive business, but not a very capital-intensive business. The operating margins in pure banking might be a bit lower than on the sales and trading side, but the overall returns, given low capital intensity, are potentially higher. Fixed income and the equity side, the company, if you like, the firm, can take more of the margin because it's putting up the capital and less of it is attributable to the employees. Actually, one of the interesting features of the past 20 years is that the overall compensation ratio, people used to talk about the compensation ratio of these businesses for every dollar of revenue, how much went to the employees. And another feature of these businesses, very people intensive, is that the assets of the firm would go home at the end of every evening. And in order to retain them, 20 years ago, 50 cents in every dollar of revenue was attributable to employees. Increasingly, a number of different reasons due to balance sheet becoming more important, due to consolidation of market share within the industry, and due to technology, the firm has become more important. The value of the seat, the value of the Goldman Sachs brand and its balance sheet connected have become more important. And so that compensation ratio has gone down. And this is across banking and across sales and trading. Now, rather than taking 50 cents on every dollar, employees are taking 30 cents on every dollar. And that's been a big change over the past 20 years. Yeah, I can speak from personal experience. There's something to be said as you go through your company's earnings presentation and get excited at the margin expansion opportunities, only to realize that a big portion of that margin expansion is coming from employee compensation. So it was a funny one to look back on and something that was often discussed on the floor as we looked at that comp ratio. Didn't mean much up until the fourth quarter when everything shook out for the full year. But yes, something that employees closely monitor there. That was a great breakdown of those two divisions, which I think people often assume when they think of an investment bank, they think of those deals, those big IPOs. They think of the sales and trading and prop trading. That's what the movies are made about. You also have this really interesting asset management business, wealth management business that all kind of combine together because you can tell me, but I think of the revenue models as somewhat similar there. Maybe you can explain those and break those down in terms of how they're different from somewhat of a more cyclical nature that comes in investment banking and sales and trading. Asset management is a very interesting business. It is a lot more stable. The firm Goldman runs over two and a half trillion of assets for third parties and for itself. The third party piece, they earn off that a management fee, which is very, very stable. They earn typically maybe 0.2% of assets under supervision. They earn some incentive fees as well. The difference with Goldman is that they also run some of their own money within that business. So this is the principal investing that you just highlighted that Goldman was known for of old. One of the features of the business was that the access to deal flow globally and to market information globally was such that it was able to exploit the benefit of its own balance sheet, some very profitable trades. One that just jumps to mind going back 
before the financial crisis, which changed their ability to exploit some of these things. But before the financial crisis was the Chinese banks, which were being IPO'd back in the mid-2000s. And Goldman was able to take large pre-IPO positions in certainly one, the biggest Chinese bank, ICBC. Many other examples all over the world. That changed during the financial crisis when there was more onus on them not to act as principal and not to do proprietary trading. Capital regulations made it much more capital intensive for them to do that. Although they do now allocate a significant chunk of their balance sheet and their asset management business generates 15 billion of revenue, of which 11 billion, let's say, is investing on their own account, but that's going down. And the target of the company is to reduce the capital it allocates to investing on its own account and increase the less capital-intensive, more recurring-revenue-oriented third-party assets that it manages instead. And it's a good opportunity to transition. You referenced this a bit before in terms of sales and trading. You described it as a black box, which brings me back to my research writing days when that was the exact term we were not allowed to use. But since no longer work at Goldman, I can now say the word black box. It's very difficult to look year to year how much you're going to make coming out of that business, which differs from an asset management business where understanding the AUM and the fee stream on that, you have much better visibility. How do investors value banks as a whole? When you put together all of these pieces, I think the metrics and multiples that are used are much different from any industry that I've ever spent much time on. So maybe you can give us a 101 of how investors value banks. Well, firstly, you make a really interesting point. The reason why banks employ asset management activities is often to counterbalance the volatility inherent in a sales and trading business. So investment banks historically have often had asset management businesses. Increasingly, we're seeing investment banks diversify such that Goldman is now pushing more into consumer and wealth management and third-party asset management, as we've said. Morgan Stanley recently made an acquisition of E-Trade, retail brokerage. It's made acquisitions in asset management as well in order to diversify out the revenue stream and lock in more recurring revenue streams. But in answer to your question, I was going to say the most important metric, certainly the metric that most analysts will look at when looking at a bank or an investment bank first and the one management will often run the organization to is the return on equity. Goldman Sachs, for example, has a target return on equity of 14 to 16%. Their overriding financial target is that 14 to 16% return on equity. Now, if you discount growth completely, if you go back to something we were discussing earlier, volatility aside, through the cycle, if it's a GDP growth type of business, so you can discount growth then the way to value a bank or an investment bank is simply to compare that return on equity to its cost of equity. Think of it like a bond. It's giving you, let's say, 15% a year return on your equity. And your required return on that equity is, let's say, it's 10%. That might be a function of risk, but let's say it's 10%. And therefore, thinking of it as a bond, what should that be worth? 15 over 10, 1.5. And so the kind of heuristic that has persisted 
for many, many years valuing this space is to look at a price to book, which is a function of the degree to which the firm generates a return on equity over its cost of equity. And that works for Goldman Sachs right now. That's really interesting and a great rule of thumb to use. It's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about the book value and what that comes from. It's essentially a view of the bank's assets, the bank's balance sheet. And to go back in time, first thing I learned about interviewing at investment banks was whatever you say, they're going to take it two levels deeper. So you better be prepared for whatever comes out of your mouth to talk to it on several levels in more depth. And I can remember where I was when somebody was asking me about market conditions. And I said, yeah, it was interesting to look at this bank's earnings and what they reported as their tier three asset base. And before it left my mouth, I knew I shouldn't have said tier three asset base. And immediately in response, the person asked, what's a tier three asset? So it was a good flashback. And to be honest, I still don't have a great grasp of the difference between tier one, tier two, tier three assets. So maybe you could walk us through a bank's balance sheets, what that looks like, and how that's changed since the financial crisis, how different it looks today versus what it looked like back then. Firstly, I should say, I think you are referring to level three assets and level two assets. There's level one, level two, level three assets, and then there's tier one and tier two capital. Level three assets were a big deal. The time in which you were referring going into the financial crisis, they were a big deal. So three types of assets, assets that are very easy to value. They trade on the New York Stock Exchange, the price you can pull down from Bloomberg, a lot of liquidity behind that price. That's a level one asset. Level three assets, very, very illiquid. And one of the issues going into the financial crisis many years ago is that banks were stuffed full of these so-called level three assets, which were very hard to value. Goldman has always been a proponent of marking to market. And interestingly, its role in the global financial crisis stems from that. We talked earlier about the degree to which it profited from by being short housing-related assets in 2007 and 2008. Goldman was very quick to identify what was going on because on a very regular basis, it would look to mark to market its assets, even those that were not easy to market. Famously, in the financial crisis, AIG, big insurance company AIG, was one of the companies to run aground after Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Then there was Lehman. Then there was AIG. The government came in to backstop AIG, but Goldman arguably precipitated that by requiring AIG to post more collateral against some of the positions of which Goldman was counterparty because Goldman was marking to market more aggressively than others on the street. So mark to market, understanding the value of your balance sheet as an investment bank, really important, particularly, and here's the headline number, when you've got a very big balance sheet. Goldman's balance sheet today is $1.5 trillion of assets. $1.5 trillion of assets. Big, big balance sheet. Today, the level three issue is not that material. They've got $25 billion maybe of level three assets, which are difficult to value. The majority of the assets on the balance sheet are level one, level two. Pretty easy to value. What are those assets? Actually, today, a lot of them are cash because of requirements to shore up liquidity in the event of a difficult market condition 
Goldman Sachs, like all banks, has to retain a lot of cash-like instruments on its balance sheet. But the biggest chunk, maybe a third of the balance sheet it allocates to its sales and trading business is inventory, which is securities that they hold on their balance sheet to allow institutional customers to trade. They retain that inventory on the balance sheet. And that's it. That's the asset side of the balance sheet. How do they fund $1.5 trillion? Some of it's capital. And I talked earlier about the concept of tier one capital. Another metric that analysts look at really intensely is the tier one ratio, the common equity tier one ratio. This is the ratio of capital to assets that the bank holds. Before the financial crisis, that ratio was wafer thin. Now there are regulatory requirements around that ratio. We can drill down to that in a second, but capital is one piece of how they fund. It's a small piece, bigger than it was before the financial crisis, a relatively small piece. And then in addition, they raise unsecured debt, some secured debt, and increasingly deposits. Again, something I want to come on and talk about later is the consumer business that Goldman has launched. Part of that is around raising deposits, which is a pretty stable funding source to support that large balance sheet that they carry. That's a helpful overview of the balance sheet. I can remember back to the financial crisis and a lot of talk about leverage in the system and leverage within investment banks. Is there a way to quantify or give a sense of what leverage looked like then versus what leverage looks like today? There are figures available. The banks have never been more capitalized relative to the assets that they carry and the underlying risks that they run. So Goldman today runs with about $100 billion of capital on its balance sheet. If you go back to 2007, 2006, they had $35 billion of capital on their balance sheet. So significantly more capital. Now, the balance sheet is larger today than it was then, but it's less risky. And even if you go back to 2006, 2007, Goldman was better capitalized than banks such as Lehman Brothers, which inevitably ended up going under. And it seems like this ties into your discussion on consumer deposits and where that capitalization is coming from. Maybe you can discuss a bit more about their strategy pushing into consumer. What is driving that? It feels like capitalization is a big piece, but anything else that goes into that strategy would be useful to hear about as well. Yeah, so there's two things. So one is diversification of funding sources. One of the lessons from the financial crisis wasn't just to have stronger capital base to support the balance sheet, but it was also to have more diversified funding sources. Bear Stearns, which ran into trouble before Lehman even, was very reliant on short-term funding unsecured. And by tapping into deposits, which are long-term, uncorrelated with other capital markets-oriented funding sources, that's a healthy source of funding. Now, you can't just take your customer's deposits and go and put it on red at the casino, inject it into your principal investing business. There are regulations around how those deposits are treated, but broadly, it creates some diversification on the balance sheet. That's one reason a financial reason. There is another reason as well, which is interesting, which is that when Goldman became a bank at the end of 2008, it was forced to take on a whole set of new regulations. And there were lots of costs associated with those regulations. 
Now, for many years, Goldman suffered those costs, managed the business accordingly. But more recently, kind of pre-David Solomon, the current CEO, but coincides with him becoming the CEO as well. There was a realization that having suffered all the costs of becoming a bank, maybe there were some benefits that they could extract as well. One of those benefits was an ability to set up a deposit franchise. And so Goldman, unencumbered by a branch network, tapped into its technology expertise and launched a fintech, launched Marcus as an online bank to gather deposits. Did it in the US, moved into the UK, various other markets as well, and already has raised quite substantial deposits from that business. Related to that, Goldman also realized that, hang on, we've got lots of investment banking clients, actually 12,000 corporations around the world, or have done some work with Goldman in the past, whether it's M&A or underwriting. And yet they would go for their deposit business, so-called transaction banking, cash management, treasury business, to other banks, HSBC, Citigroup, JP Morgan. And Goldman, again, recognized, well, hang on, we've got the infrastructure now being regulated as a bank to offer this transaction banking service to these corporates. Why don't we do that? And so it launched alongside the consumer deposit business. It launched the transaction banking business as well. Together, they are very generative of deposits. The firm now has over $350 billion of deposits from a much lower base a couple of years ago. To bring listeners behind the curtain, I was telling Mark about my experience, I think it was 2017, maybe 2018, where on the day that everyone's compensation hit their wallets, there was a large contingent of Marcus employees when you walked into the lobby and on the Sky Lobby, ready to sign you up for a Marcus account with their iPads. And it was this moment for me of don't hate the player, hate the game. I respect it. It was a big push. And they realized that there would be some dollars that needed to go into various accounts. My $350 billion makes up the majority of what now sits in the deposit account. They've won my business. It's been an interesting strategy to watch in all seriousness as they've evolved and embraced more of a consumer-facing model. You spoke and referenced David Solomon, the current CEO, which his reign at Goldman has represented a bit of regime change. Maybe it'd be useful to go back in time in order to bring us up to where we are today and talk a little bit about the leadership at Goldman over the years and who you would point to as key drivers of the culture, major events over the history, and bring us up to speed as to what David represents as a, as a new leader of the firm coming from the investment banking division. So in the 150-year history of Goldman, there haven't been that many CEOs. The turnover of CEO is actually quite low for a firm with that longevity. A lot of the culture of the firm comes through that, and a lot of it is related to the partnership structure that Goldman ran right the way through until 1999, which already was a long time ago. But even subsequent to that, Goldman has tried to capture some of that partnership culture and retain it. And the way it does that is it has a partnership class. Currently, Goldman employs 45,000 people, something in that order of magnitude. There are 440 so-called partners, really partners. It's not a partnership. It's a public company. But 440 
senior managing directors, which David Solomon clearly sits on top of. Historically, Goldman has drawn its senior management from both banking and trading sides of the business. Historically, there has been a kind of a cyclicality between those businesses, periods where banking has been ascendant, periods where sales and trading has been ascendant. Current CEO came from the banking side. Lloyd Blankfein, his predecessor, came from the trading side. But his predecessor, Hank Paulson, came from the banking side. It's something that can definitely be felt in the culture where when you have traders running the firm versus when you have bankers running the firm, you do feel a shift in strategy and a shift in focus and on what matters. You can speak to that, at least in terms of one regime change. So I was there for the initial years of David taking over as CEO. And really, what was somewhat pre-announced as Lloyd was planning to leave. And Lloyd had been there for quite an extensive period of time and led the company through the financial crisis. I also thought when the CFO, David Vineyard, left, that was a pretty big change in terms of the organization. And all of these things were felt. You mentioned the partnership and the prestige around that. That is something that is very much lived and they have built a culture around that and there's a strong feeling to it. So I think employees within the organization all feel it. There's an outside view, certainly, but it's not too dissimilar from the inside view. The other observation that outsiders make about the culture is famously alumni go on to very high degrees of success in other roles, either in politics or in commerce or elsewhere. Is that something that you found percolated all the way back through the organization? There's the obvious government sacks ties that gets commonly referenced. I have been impressed, and I think it's something that I've seen, especially recently, being outside of the organization for about four years now and starting to look around at a lot of my colleagues that have gone on to run public companies or become CFOs of public companies. And we were people that grew up together in the organization. So it's constantly impressive to see the talent that exists within the organization. And I've always felt very highly and something that I've come to appreciate even more since leaving. I was just talking to one of my colleagues last week about this, about some of the walks that we used to take. And we would just go on a coffee walk and bring a different member of a random team each time. So whether it was the person that runs commodities research or our head economist, and these were just easy things that you could do on a day-to-day basis where you were interacting with very intelligent, very thoughtful people that had ambitions, not just within the organization, but outside the organization as well. So something that I think is felt, I think there is an element similar to what we mentioned prior to the episode about McKinsey having a mystique. You don't get fired for hiring IBM. In a similar case, there's a certain benefit to just the name on a resume that goes a long way. But I actually found it matched with a lot of the talent that I was working around as well, for sure. And it's a good chance to transition to the outlook from here. We went over a lot, a great overview in terms of valuation methodology and how investors look at banks. What's the bull case for here for Goldman, but for banks broadly? What are the drivers that make these businesses as an investment increase in value? It's difficult as we stand here today, having come off a record year of 2021. But Goldman's not going away. The need for corporate advice, as discussed in the McKinsey episode, is perennial. The need for sales and trading execution 
is perennial. Arguably, as the world becomes financialized, that need only goes up. Goldman as well has an advantage that one of the features of the marketplace right now is that the big are getting bigger. There is a concentration of market share among the top three players globally. It is a global business across both sales and trading and banking. So Goldman is currently number one in investment banking, M&A and underwriting. It's number one in equities currently, alongside Morgan Stanley. has about a 20% market share there. And it's number three behind JP Morgan and Citi in fixed income. Those two have commercial banking synergies. They have bigger balance sheets. But it's top three across pretty much all of its investment banking businesses. And the top three have been gaining market share over the past few years. So if you go back five, six, seven years, the top three had maybe a third of the overall market globally. What do you think is driving the market share? There is, across many industries, increasingly a scale benefit linked, not least technology spend. Goldman spends over $4 billion a year on technology. We mentioned that the share of revenues that is allocated as compensation to employees has gone down. Actually, that's not a ratio that Goldman targets anymore. They now target the overall efficiency ratio on the basis that non-compensation costs, not the people, but the technology spend and the infrastructure spend is as important as people were 20 years ago. And that's a differentiator. That's a competitive advantage that a big player has over the smaller players. There are also cultural issues. Credit Suisse, famously, right now, is going through various problems linked to litigation, linked to losses in prime, around Archegos, prime brokerage, various other associations as well. And often it takes time, but these things eventually impact culture. The best people leave. And Goldman has largely avoided many of those pitfalls that some of its smaller peers have confronted. So the broad points are Goldman sits at the center of the financial system. The financial system is growing. The share of players who operate alongside Goldman is concentrating. And then in addition, it's tapping into some additional ancillary revenue lines. We talked about consumer banking earlier. Goldman more broadly is thinking about what its competences are, what it's good at. One of them is very clearly risk management and the ability to pair up with other players in the market. So, for example, Goldman has an agreement with Stripe in payments. It has an agreement with Apple around credit cards. And it's not necessarily being exploited to its full degree by the company right now. But when I think about fintech and people say, are you worried about the fintechs or are you worried about the big technology companies moving into finance? Like Google did an agreement with Citibank to launch a deposit product. Actually, that was disbanded. Amazon is quite big in financial services in India. A lot of the big technology companies are increasingly active in finance. But if people ask me, are you more worried about the fintechs, the startups, or those big technology companies? My response is what I think would be the most formidable competitor would be a 
combination of, let's say, Goldman Sachs and a consumer-facing technology company. The consumer-facing technology company has the distribution, has the trust of consumers, and Goldman has the risk management expertise and the balance sheet. They put those two together, and as far as financial services are concerned, that's a pretty strong player. There's this famous decision of build versus buy, but I often think the most interesting is build versus buy versus partner. And you've seen Goldman partner, which is really interesting both for the incumbent in Goldman, but also the new players. And I'm always fascinated to watch how those partnerships evolve and when they come to be. Are there other potential forms of competition that exist? Could a new bank rise into that same stature as a JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley? How do you feel about the risk of something along those lines where it's a little bit more traditional in nature in terms of competition? I think it's largely been baked in and it's less traditional in nature, actually. Post the financial crisis, the regulatory framework constructed around banks was sufficient to create an environment where competitors popped up elsewhere. And in particular, we talked about Blackstone in a business breakdown before. Blackstone and other private equity firms, private credit firms too, now operate in competition, really, with the likes of Goldman Sachs in the provision of capital to clients. You've also got a number of M&A boutiques. The kind of culture of M&A boutiques goes back a long, long time, Lazard and before that. But post-financial crisis, a number of them also set up shop. So you've got boutiques on the M&A side. You've got the private equity firms, which have gained in scale and don't have the same regulatory constraints of the likes of Goldman Sachs and the banks. And then you've also got the traditional competitors. So I've said before, JP Morgan is on a par with Goldman Sachs in a number of its business areas. But those top three that have been gaining market share are Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and Goldman Sachs. And between them, it's a very competitive environment. And how do you view the strength of the core business? I think there's been a lot of words written about the push for more direct listings and moving away from the IPO model. I think there has been some compression in fees in some of the IPOs and the M&A deals done. And equally, there's a lot of focus on the sales and trading division, how much flow is actually coming through the system, seeing some of those commissions shrink, the more expensive nature of putting any of those risk dollars to work. So how would you classify the strength of the core business? I think, again, there's a lot of words written, but how real are those threats, those risks, that potential for secular change where the banking business isn't as strong? Going back a while now to when SPACs were a thing. A while now, which is uh, a while, but also just yesterday. It's funny how quickly things can change, right? Precisely. And one of the arguments in favor of SPACs was that they were an alternative to IPOs. And the reason why an alternative was needed is because the banks made too much money through the IPO process. Kind of amusing. SPACs were a huge profit center for these investment banks. And actually, from beginning to end, the entire SPAC process was probably more profitable than the IPO business because it entailed an M&A fee. It entailed distribution fees. There were other fees associated as well. Very, very difficult to avoid using an investment bank, which also talks to a question you answered. And there's another feature in common with McKinsey is that a CEO won't be making that many strategic decisions 
over his tenure. When he or she is ready to make one, they will want a advisor with experience by their side, and they won't be too picky around price. And so historically, there's been a lot of academic work, actually, that's been done around IPO pricing and M&A pricing. Historically, they have proven to be very, very sticky. And the concentration that's now building up in the market, consolidation of share around those three players, is probably only going to enhance that. Sales and trading, a bit more difficult. And for sure, historically, you've had almost a battle, a power shift between the exchanges on the one hand and the investment banks. The investment banks used to sit at the center of financial markets. They don't anymore. Private equity firms have a claim on that position. Global exchange groups who not only operate exchanges that we know of, like the New York Stock Exchange, they offer clearing businesses, which command a lot of power. They also own benchmark index companies, which command a lot of power because they drive a lot of the passive flows, which are so important today. So trade is what historically always known as the masters of the universe. Over the past 20 years, that moniker shifted towards first hedge fund managers and then private equity funds, but also less on the front pages of newspapers, the people, unknown people that command the global indices, the benchmarks, which drive so much of fund flows around global markets today. The growth in passive investments has such an interesting ripple effect on the market from a trading perspective inside the walls of a Goldman. And the less flow there is, the more challenging it is to be a market maker. But it goes well beyond that in terms of asset pricing, valuation of businesses, just understanding what sits in a passive ETF now versus what does not, what the catalysts are. It's created its own investment strategy all around it. This has been an excellent discussion, Mark. I've learned a ton just in terms of how to view these businesses, the rules of thumbs for thinking about the various segments and what each dollar of revenue is actually generating in terms of profitability, margins. How would you wrap this all up for investors? And we asked the same closing question of what are the lessons that you can take away from looking at Goldman for investors? And I would put it through the lens of your extensive history looking at this particular sector. What would you say the key lessons are, maybe the things that you've changed your mind on or opened your eyes to as time has gone on while focusing on this industry? I think culture matters. I think as a financial analyst, which is my background, it's something that's often overlooked. I think it matters. I think Goldman has retained partly self-sustaining because reputation drives reputation, but they have been able to retain, and I say this as a user of their services, a small firm culture. There are 45,000 people that work there, but as a user of their services, and maybe you've got some views on this as someone who worked there. It was always actually quite easy for me to find within those 45,000 people, the person who knew about X. Part of that, I think, comes back to the partnership itself and the replication of that partnership through these senior managing directors, the 440 people that from across the entire firm, from all departments, that sit at the center of it. 440 is an interesting number. A lot of work has been done around Dunbar numbers, 150. 
being kind of the number of people that anyone can know. 440 is reasonable. I'd be surprised if they didn't know each other. And that, sitting at the heart of this big organization from a cultural perspective, provides both not only communication horizontally across the firm, but also contributes, I think, to its longevity. There's an institutional memory there. Very well said. The first lesson they taught us on day one was you don't need to know the answer to the question. You just need to know the person that knows the answer to the question. And that was something that was pushed throughout the organization from both my time in sales and trading. When I moved to research, it was a push to coordinate across the capital structure with the different research analysts in the different asset classes, working on the energy team, having exposure to the commodities team, to the equity team, being on the credit side of things. There was always a lot of coordination and they found a way to leverage the work that was happening across the organization and try to get multiple uses out of it rather than just have people doing the same repetitive work in their own silos and not being able to use each other. So well said, a culture that I definitely felt and probably appreciate more since leaving versus even while being there. Thank you again, Mark. Thanks, Matt. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.